My first Olympics were in the United States of America. They were in Salt Lake City on our our, our home soil, and um, I, I was 19 years old, and it was such a big moment for me uh, that it was too big. The spotlight was too big. I was the number one ranked skier in the world coming into my first Olympics, this moment I dreamt about my entire life. I mean, even to the point when, when we checked into to our condo, I looked at the bed, and I'm like, you know what? I've actually dreamt about what bed I would sleep in in my first Olympics. And the pressure was too big. I could, I didn't know how to handle it. I just, you know, I, I felt sick to my stomach 24-7, and I just couldn't get past, like, this, this big magnifying glass. It was my first big kind of competition on the world stage. And then to get drafted by my, my dad's hometown team, he grew up in Philadelphia, and spent a couple of years with the Eagles and sharing a locker room with Don McNabb and Brian Dawkins, and then going to the 2008 Steelers, which they eventually became the world champions that year, and learning from Heinz Ward and, and Mike Tomlin. It was, you know, it was, just, it was an amazing time in my life. It was, it was a childhood dream come true for me. You watched them. You cheered for them. Maybe you booed them. You listened to them. You were impressed by them. Today, they share their favorite memories with you. It's the Give Me a Sense podcast. Here's your host, Mike Yam. Well, it's really the greatest time of the year if you are a, a sports fan. The Olympics are, are finally upon us. And I know next week on, on the podcast, we're going to have Samantha Peshik, who obviously had a lot of success at this, as a gymnast. But to start off the Olympic conversation, I thought there was no one better to bring on than a guy that I've been fortunate enough to work with at the Pac-12 Network. And I think you can make an argument. He is on the short list of one of the finest athletes this country has ever seen, because not many people could accomplish what Jeremy Bloom was able to do athletically. He's the only athlete to ski in the Olympics and to be drafted in the NFL. His story is ridiculous to go from the Olympics and then go to the NFL combine and have to compete and show off for NFL teams. But he was still good enough to get drafted in the fifth round by the Philadelphia Eagles. And Jeremy, it is awesome to have you here on the show with me. Always a pleasure to be with you, Yammer. Always have a good time, buddy. Yeah, we, we, we make sure that we have some fun, at least uh, on the set. But, you know, it's funny because I, I do this introduction and I think a lot of people know you from your Olympic coverage. And obviously we're pre-taping this. You're already down in Rio by the time this show is airing. There's got to be such a cool feeling for you as a guy that's a two-time Olympian that had so much success on the world stage, too. I mean, three-time world champion, 11-time World Cup uh, medalist as well. I mean, the things that you were able to do on the slopes are are absolutely incredible. But what's it like for you as you anticipate being around another Olympic game? Yeah, it's it's a feeling. We we celebrated Christmas in my household, and when I was you know eight, nine, and ten, it's it, it's the it's almost the feeling of going to bed on Christmas Eve night. Uh, that's what the Olympics mean to me. That's that's what the, the they have meant to me my entire life, uh, ever since I was young enough to know what they they are. And what I think is so great about the Olympics is the whole world comes together, and for for sport, for competition, for camaraderie. And primarily, it's 99% of athletes who nobody knows their name, but these men and women have trained their entire lives. For sometimes seconds, I mean, my, my, my sport of freestyle skiing was 23 seconds. I trained my entire life for two Olympics for 23 seconds. And, and I think that there's, 
there's something very compelling about that. And I just love it. I love the Olympics. You talk about sort of that, that small window of actual performance when you're, when you're achieving greatness, when you're skiing, what's the pressure like heading into an Olympic games? Because as you mentioned, you're training your entire life as far back as you can remember. It's, I want to be an Olympic uh, medalist and I want to be able to compete in these games. You were able to compete there and, and knowing that you wanted to perform at the highest level, how much pressure is there before you actually go out? Well, my, my experience was a lot different between my first Olympics and my second Olympics. My first Olympics were in the United States of America. They were in Salt Lake City on our, our, our home soil. And um, I, I was 19 years old, and it was such a big moment for me uh, that it was too big. The spotlight was too big. I was the number one ranked skier in the world coming into my first Olympics, this moment I dreamt about my entire life. I mean, even to the point when, when we checked into to our condo, I looked at the bed and I'm like, you know what? I've actually dreamt about what bed I would sleep in in my first Olympics. And the pressure was too big. I could, I didn't know how to handle it. I just, you know, I, I felt sick to my stomach 24-7 and I just couldn't get past like this, this big magnifying glass. It was my first big kind of competition on the world stage. And then four years later, you know, I went through um, playing football at the University of Colorado and on national television, playing at Florida State and Oklahoma and playing at the Big 12 championship game. And so as an athlete in, in my maturation process, I was able to kind of learn how to deal with that, that type of pressure a little bit better than, than I did in, in, in Salt Lake. So coming into Torino, my second Olympics, um, I, I really wasn't nervous at all. I, I kind of had my mental cues and I, knew, and I just knew what I needed to, to do. And I felt much more comfortable on the world stage. Are you aware of that in the second Olympics? Like, do you say to yourself in Torino, wow, I don't, it just feels different. It's not what I remember the last time around. Uh, it was night and day. It was, it was night and day. Salt Lake City was just an out-of-body experience, the whole thing. Just walking in opening ceremonies and hearing the crowd erupt and wearing the American flag. And, you know, I just, I didn't even feel like I was in my body. I was, I was 19. I was a young 19-year-old who was competing on the world stage for the first time. And, you know, four years later, I had a lot more experience under my belt, and and it was still magical, and it was still incredible and a, and a big honor. But the 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 pressure wasn't as as great. Even close. You you bring up opening ceremony. That's actually a good place to start because I made reference to Samantha Peshek, who's next week's guest, because I already had the conversation with her. And she said, look, I didn't even get an opportunity to be a part of opening ceremony. She said, you know, in gymnastics where, you know, basically we had to go and, and, and rest because the competition was kicking right up. You're standing out there and you're walking. You know, it was just sort of like a strategic thing. It sounds like you were there for opening ceremony. So explain to me what what that experience is like with all of these athletes, the world stages you made reference to knowing that everyone is out there and you're looking around at, at all these fantastic athletes. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. And, you know, especially for the athletes who have to compete that very next day, like women's moguls was always the very next day after opening ceremonies. So not many of our women team would, would go and walk in opening ceremonies. And granted it is a, ton of standing around i mean you are standing around waiting for your turn for what seems to be an eternity but when those you know it's at night when those lights are on in that stadium and it's packed and anybody who has watched it on tv or seen it in person it, it is a spectacle and to wear that american flag and, and to wave to people and take that 
that walk around the arena is an experience that I would never trade for anything. And, you know, uh, it, it was pretty special. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how else to put it into words. It's just yeah. the culmination of, uh, of a lot of dreams as a, as a young child for all these Olympians. You, I mean, All-American as, as a football player at Colorado, two-time Olympian. I made reference to what you were able to do, um, you know, in some significant competitions um, in the world. And yet when you've moved on, and I want to circle back to uh, the Olympics in a second here, but, you know, right now, I mean, I know you as a television analyst because that's what you do with me. But I also know you as a guy that is extremely successful on the business front. I mean, you are you – know, your business is is worth millions of dollars, what you've been able to accomplish on the tech side. And yet also what you do were for wish for a, of a lifetime. And I want to get to that in a couple minutes. But is the Olympics – is that the, the greatest achievement for you? Because the way you're describing it, you can't put it into words. To me, it's – you have a, a plenty of options. Is that where you would go? Well, the the Olympics was an incredible experience and, and a huge honor for me. Uh, it's not what I'm most proud of in my life, um, and that's not taking away anything for football and, and skiing and the things that I was able to accomplish there. But you know, wish of a lifetime is pretty special. We we're you know it's a nonprofit. I started in 2008 um, with the dream of giving the oldest people in in our country the platform to realize whatever lifelong dream they've they've ever had. And I've just always felt like we don't treat the oldest people in our country with the amount of respect that they deserve. And whereas you can go to a lot of other cultures and a lot of other countries like Asia and in throughout Scandinavia, you see a culture built on respect to the oldest where literally in Japan, they'll bow. If you're you know, 80, 90, they'll bow to you. That, that's how much respect. And so, you know, almost 10 years into, you know, a nonprofit where we get to hang out with 80, 90, 100 year old types of people. And say, you know that dream you've always wanted to do or that person you've always wanted to meet or that thing you've always wanted to do, let's go do it, you know, and go, go grab them and go take them out there and, 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 uh, and go grant that. And, you know, in our first year, we granted four wishes and, you know, uh, now we're, we're granting over one wish per day on average. I can't even keep track of, wow. <laughs> of all the wow. wishes. And so, you know, it's pretty special when you can be a small part um, in, in changing someone's life. Uh, who have, who has lived an extraordinary life like they have? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I mean, I have a great appreciation for for what you do. And and by the way, for more information, go to wishofalifetime.org. There are some great stories there. I mean, people meeting their idols. I, I saw a story about Willie Nelson where someone uh, was able to meet meet uh, meet him. I know people have been able to to go attend Thunder games as well. I mean, it's just a really cool experience. As a guy that was really tight with my grandparents, uh, you know, I certainly can appreciate the the job that you've been able to do. And I'm sure you know your family is extremely proud for what you've been able to accomplish athletically. And I, I do want to circle back to the Olympics as well because you're working for NBC, uh, I know as this podcast is being recorded, you're already down in Rio. Part of your experience and your assignment is to be in that Olympic Village. You've already experienced that. What, okay, I, I thank God I'm going to get a story here because because Peshik was was balking at giving me some good juicy stuff. What, what's the Olympic Village like? <laughs> oh, it's, it is a very very interesting place, and and you know here's the reason why it's because. There's always two different groups. When you're in the athlete village, there's two different groups in, in, uh, in all areas of, of the village. There's the group that uh, have yet to compete, and they don't look at anybody. They don't talk to anybody. They, and then there's the group that have already competed. 
Now, I want you to imagine <laughs> not drinking, not partying, not and stressing out for however many years, four, five, six years, to get to this point. And win, lose, draw. It I want you to imagine all of that going away the next day. And so what you have is like a bunch of people when, when they're done competing, and they just want to rage. They just want to have a good time. They, and they want to enjoy people's company, if you know what I mean. And it is a great place to be. Like NBC gives me the, the, the greatest job in the history of the Olympics, in my opinion, I don't want to be on prime time with, you know, uh, Costas. <laughs> I want to be in the Olympic Village doing social pieces <laughs> on the athletes and hanging there. And and it's it's been really fun. This is my third Olympics doing doing this assignment. They put a, a studio in one of the dorms in the Athlete Village, and I just I spend my days in the Athlete Village hanging out with the various athletes and coming up with fun social pieces to do with. Can I can I help you with uh, a hashtag here? You know, because Pac-12 sure. Network during football season, you know this. We have the the yeah. trending hashtag Pac-12 After Dark. I say Olympic Village After Dark is what you're describing to me. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's a it's a PG show, Yammer. <laughs> Fair so, enough. Fair. You know, well, look, all I go off after after midnight. But. I just want to remind you, you and I have always had fun on set. So if you ever need, and on my bucket list is to be able to to do something in broadcasting around the Olympics. So with that said, if you ever need some help in future Olympic games uh, to do your role or help you, I, I am I'm offering my services to you. So <laughs> well, I appreciate just, that. I'm going to pass that you, on to NBC. I, as long please. as you just don't take my job. They, they were, were cool. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I couldn't know. You you have all the credibility. You're the one who's actually competed. I, I just I'm the guy who just smiles and talks and try to have a good time when I'm out there. Uh, but look, you made reference to it, sort of the the two groups, the two camps, the ones who have competed and the ones who haven't competed that want to go and have a good time. Yet right after one of your Olympic games, you competed and then took off for the NFL Combine. How in the world can you go? What did your What was your forty time? Did you run a four four? I ran a four four, which was slower than I uh, I had hoped. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If you say so. So four four. This is the type of athlete I, I want everyone who's listening right now. This dude's on skis, training for what months and months and months for the Olympic Games. You hop on a plane from from Italy, you go to Indianapolis and run a four four and are probably disappointed with that. But what's the mental mindset? Like what 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 fuels you to to go? Because I know the Olympic Games for you didn't turn out necessarily the way you wanted. How much do you yeah. use that as motivation? You know, that was a fun month, Yammer. Uh you know, when I was ten I said I wanted to play in the Olympics or I wanted to play in the NFL and ski in the Olympics and you know, in, in one month, I, I got an opportunity to, to be on two really big stages for, for both. And, yeah, I, I left that next day and flew to Indianapolis, and I got to meet with a bunch of the teams at, at the 2006 NFL Combine. And I was disappointed running 4-4. I, I, was, I, am, I was faster than that. I'm not anymore, for sure. Uh, but, but I was. Um, uh, but then, you know, sitting in, 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 on draft day, and not knowing if I would get drafted because I, you know, I hadn't played football in two years because of the whole NCAA thing. I, I'd just been skiing, getting ready for that that Olympics, and then to get drafted by my my dad's hometown team. He grew up in Philadelphia and spent a couple of years with the Eagles and sharing a locker room with Don McNabb and Brian Dawkins, and then going to the 2008 Steelers, which they eventually became the world champions that year, and learning from Heinz Ward and and Mike Tomlin. It was 
you know, it was, just, it was an amazing time in my life. It was, it was a childhood dream come true for me. You get there and – you know, we make so much. I've talked to Curtis Conway about this, Jake Plummer, all these guys. They take me through their experience. Jake's had great stories about the NFL Combine. And they tell you just for how, how, how grinding it is. I got to think for you as an athlete that's already competed in the Olympics. It was nothing. The question – It was yeah, right? I was, mean – It was intramural football. It was an intramural football. I mean I had just come off of the world's biggest stage, and I think that really helped me. Um you know, at least my psychology there, because these guys, these guys, this is their biggest uh, opportunity to play in the NFL. And for me, just coming off, the, it had, it couldn't even come close to the amount of pressure that uh, that, that you feel and in, 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 that are in and around the Olympics. Is there a moment that you remember specifically from, you know, you mentioned some of those guys that you played with, the McNabs, the Heinz Wards, like. Are they almost in a lot? I mean, because you come in, you know, at least in Philadelphia, you're a rookie, but you're a rookie who's well known and in a lot of ways has more national recognition than, than they do as as established veterans. I mean, is that are they are they almost fans of yours? As weird as that might sound. Oh, oh I don't know. I, I I came in with a, with a great deal of humility. I mean, these, these are guys in, in organizations and teams that I looked up to my entire life. I mean, I, I came in as a as a wide eyed you know, kid trying to make a team. And, uh, you know, we shared a lot of stories about the Olympics, and I think that there was a mutual respect um, uh, because of that. But, but man, I, I was the rookie coming in, and I was just, you know, trying hard to make the team. Um, and I would I looked up to these guys. I wanted to get their autograph. I mean, I just – I wanted to spend time – these were just incredible players. So, but I do th- – you know, I think there was a mutual respect. How much – do those relationships, whether it's the Olympic Games or even the NFL ties and being teammates, how, how does that carry over? I mean, you don't play football anymore. You're you're not an Olympic athlete at this point, yet you still go and you're you're still around these guys. Like those relationships, how long do they extend? Do you are they are you guys kind of like this fraternity or sorority, so to speak, of of athletes and that relationship and that bond just never goes away? And you guys keep in touch and are always friends. You really do. You, you might not always keep in touch because life gets busy and, you know, you, there, there's a lot of, you know, uh, distractions. But if you see anyone from, from the past and even, you know, the Steelers, I was only there for a year to see former teammates. It's, it's like you never – you don't skip a beat. And I would say the same thing for, for the Olympics. I mean, it is a, a big sorority or a big fraternity, however you want to classify it. And if you're an Olympian, you share a bond with somebody that – does feel like a brotherhood or does feel like a sisterhood uh, because you, you, you understand where that, what they went through. You understand what it took to get there. You understand that a lot of these athletes are working two or three jobs just so that they can, for, for the love to compete for their sport. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty special. Who's your, who's your closest friend that's an Olympian? Oh gosh, I have a, I have a ton actually. Um, I knew that was like a loaded wow. question because you're as social a person as I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know who, you know, would, would classify as my, my closest Olympic friend because I, I really do keep in touch with uh, so many of them. Just, just yesterday I was in Arizona and uh, went to, went to dinner and caught up with Lolo Jones, uh, who yeah. is I think one of only 10, 10 people who have competed in the summer and, and winter Olympics. And, 
Um, so, you know, there, there's a big network of, of a lot of us that, you know, when we're in similar cities, we'll get together, we'll grab a drink and catch up. And, and uh, there's certainly a sense of camaraderie. Who's the, uh, how's that transition for you though? Because I made reference to what you've been able to do on the business side and I, maybe not just for you, but a lot of these Olympic athletes, like what's, what's next for them? Cause I feel like the Olympic games come up and then we get to know a lot of the same people that we've you we're watching. I mean, they, they do what you do, for example, they get into the broadcasting room, but that's not for everyone. So sort of what's that next path for a lot of these athletes that invest so much time and dedicate their lives to their sport? Well, it's the great unknown. And, and for me, it was my biggest fear. Uh, my biggest fear was not, you know, not winning an event or, or losing a football game. It was, is my life going to have purpose after athletics? Because, you, you know, you're kind of born into this world and you dream about the sport and it defines you for so long and you invest everything you have in it. But, you know, let's be honest, if you can catch a football or go do a spin off of a mogul jump, it, you know, that's not really going to translate that well in the corporate world. You're not going to get hired by putting that on your resume, right? And so when I, when I left sports, I, I had the goal um, of, of truly redefining myself outside of athletics. And I wanted to start over. I wanted to go to the bottom of the mountain where you're like JV football, you know, where you didn't know anything and you, you had to learn by failure and learn by obstacles, learn by uh, surrounding yourself with, with great people. And I've always felt like the world of being an entrepreneur is such an interesting one because you only get better every day. You learn every single day. And whereas in athletics, it ends for us all relatively early um, in our lives, you can be an entrepreneur for a really long time. And so now, you know, six years into building a company uh, that, that's now over 100 employees and, gosh, I don't however million millions we've raised, I think it's 42 million we've raised now, um, you know, I've made all the classical mistakes. But my pattern recognition is so much stronger now for whatever's next, you know, that next company that I start, the next thing that I do. Um, and you really do kind of control your own destiny. There's no judges at the end of the day. It's like, does your product work? Does it not? Are you growing? Are you not? How do you build a culture? How do you build a team? And, you know, that, that's all been really fun for me. And correct me if I'm wrong, this wasn't just finish playing, find a business, and take off. There's there's a process for you. You didn't just land into this company, correct? No, I started from scratch. It was just an idea. You know, I, I went to, when I was at, with the Eagles, um, the NFL has this incredible program that everybody should take advantage of. But you can take MBA-type classes at Kellogg, Stanford, Harvard, or Wharton. And Wharton was in my backyard, and one of my business professors told me something I'll never forget. He said, because I, I wanted to start a company at that point while I was still playing. He said, listen, go lose somebody else's money first. Like, you, you have no idea what you're doing. You're just going to lose. Like, all these investments you want to make, they're all BS. This, this company, you'll, a good idea is not worth anything without execution. You need to learn. So that's what I did. I joined a startup, and I was running customer acquisition marketing, and I knew nothing about it, like literally nothing about it. But I was learning as an athlete, so I said, all right, jump in, sink or swim, let's go. And with, you know, nine months later, I said, hey, why isn't there software solving this problem? Because it's my biggest headache. It's our biggest headache as a marketing team. And so I, I found a gap, and I said, all right, there's what I want to do, and I left. And I got a, a technical co-founder, and, and you know, we just started building it, and that's, that's kind of how it evolved. That's amazing because it's – you didn't just wait for it, right? I mean, you kind of took took advantage of the resources in front of you. I mean, to be able to go to Wharton, I mean, 
that's that's big time, right? And then to to learn there, find a role, progress, move forward. I mean, that's that's you're like the like why America's great. I mean, I hate to sound cheesy and corny. I mean, Lord knows I've watched a lot of episodes of Shark Tank, but that's like you have like the the true American story. You get to represent the country, be an Olympic athlete, play in the NFL, go to business school, start a, a successful business. I mean, what else is there? Well, it sounded a little cheesy, Yammer, but uh, it, well, it. all right, maybe a little bit, but it's true. I mean, you can't you can't argue against what I said. Uh, no, I appreciate it. I, yeah, I, I do feel incredibly lucky that I've been able to to just just the life experiences. Forget about the end results for a second, like the the medals or whatever. Just the just the life experience that that I've been able to have through football and skiing and nonprofit and, and for profit now. Um, is has been has been really yeah really fun. I feel feel lucky that I've been able to, to, to experience it. All right. I'm going to let you get running here uh, off of this. Um, next week's episode, as I made reference to is Samantha Peshik. I asked her like what her go-to story is, or maybe that famous person that she met. She told me a great story about Kobe. That's a tease for next week's show. Cause dream team was, you know, kind of around and Kobe was, or one of those dream teams, Kobe was a part of it. They had a, a an awkward interaction. So that's next week's show. So I say, Jeremy Bloom, two-time Olympian, NFL player. What's the go-to story that you have for me? My go-to, I don't know if it's my go-to, but I guess this is the first thing that's popping in into my head as you're, as you're saying this, this is probably one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Uh, yes. I had this. This was this was I don't know six years ago or so or whatever. I had the biggest crush on uh, a country singer named Carrie Underwood, and I got to meet her. You and everyone else in the country. So you, yeah, you, no, you beautiful girl. Every, we all have a crush on Carrie. Exactly. So you get backstage so passes. Married you said? now, Mike Fisher, big box guy, but whatever. Okay. So this is before <laughs> she's dating Mike. Literally, like she's single. This is like probably. And maybe they were dating me or they're not. Anyway, I met her uh, before her show, before her concert in Denver, and I shook her hand, and we talked a little bit. We talked about sports, you know, et cetera. And, and then I kind of went over there afterwards. I'm like, listen, I'm, you know, here's my number. Uh, would love to hear from you. Would love to hang out sometime. It was, like, su- super awkward. Like, I was that guy, okay? Like, and I, <laughs> so that was the first part. So then the next part is like, I, you know, I don't have a good read on her. Like I felt like she was leaning in, but I couldn't really tell if she was into me or like what was going on. And so during the show, I, um, I had kind of like these, uh, this VIP pass that kind of put me right in, in the front of the stage. So I'm just kind of hanging out there with my buddies and I, you know, looking at this incredibly beautiful woman who has the best voice in the world, just further falling in love with her. Right. And she's singing. And then she, uh, as she's singing, she points to me. And the spotlight comes comes you know, on, and and she 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 waves to me, and so I I'm like super embarrassed at this point. I'm like, should I wave back? So I start waving to her, and then she kind of blows me a kiss, and I'm like, holy shit, Whoa. what is going on? Yeah, like you know, she, this is amazing. Like I must have had like a huge impact on her. She's she's blowing me a kiss <laughs> from stage, and, and so uh, I blow her a kiss back, and I'm like, whoa. And um, my buddy taps me on the shoulder and he says, look behind you. And there's this like three-year-old girl who's dancing with a sign oh, that says, I love Carrie yeah. Underwood. And I thought she was looking at me, but she was really looking at the three-year-old girl that was cute and dancing. And uh, I wanted to crawl into a hole. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing that story um, because it's highly entertaining. That was so embarrassing. 
and it and it is really embarrassing. I can see how embarrassing that that would be. Um, did, did you ever like main friends? Did she ever call? Not call? Uh, may surprise you, but uh, she never texted me. No, I never heard from her. Um, you know what? Maybe. I don't know. I, that's that's a that's a rough deal. Look, we've all been there. Did I ever tell you my my Anna Kornikova story? That's kind of similar to that, but not really. No. Uh-uh. So like, I, I had like the biggest crush on corn. I mean, me and everyone else on the planet. So I'm like, I'm in high school at the time, and I used to go to this tennis tournament every single year from like when I was a kid through you know even maybe the beginning of college with my mom. We'd always get tickets, and you know at this point I'm like maybe 16. Uh, Kornikova is probably, you know, 15. I don't know if we're, we're probably like two years apart. And my mom says to me, Hey, like, I'm going to get tickets for this event. Um, you know, where do you like, what do you want to see? You want me to get tickets for the finals? And I said, no, no, no. First round Kornikova. Don't care. First round. Like I got to see her. So I go to the, we go and like, I'm that, you know, a tennis match, you know, I mean, you've been to a bunch of them. Like you don't, you cheer, but you're not like that loud. I'm embarrassing my mom. I'm like that guy just cheering every <laughs> single point, just kind of going nuts. So the end of the, uh, the event, she wins and she starts signing autographs. So I like bum rush the court. Okay. And she starts like making her way towards, towards me, towards like center court. And then she has to go do an interview with Bud Collins, you know, the famous tennis broadcaster, you know, when it's over, she gets, she gets the, uh, she finishes up the interview, picks up her bag and starts walking out. Now she's got to walk past me, me and about 800 other fans. Jeremy, I swear to God, I swear to God, she, we made eye contact. We make eye contact. Right. And like, I'm serious, man. I melt. I am. So we make this eye contact and I have like this program in front of me and I like, I don't know if I audibly said it or I just mouthed it, but I was like, can you sign? And she comes over to me, dude, I swear, grabs a Sharpie from another person, signs my program, her signature, by the way, I don't know what it really looks like, but this basically was a heart. I I, look, I'm not even playing. It's a heart (laughs) signature. And that's, and I think she signed one, one more other person's autograph, a little, a little girl, a little kid and walks out. When I tell you I was on cloud nine for the entire summer. And I mean, I was jumping up and down. My mom still tells the story. says I, the smile wasn't off my face for like weeks because of this moment. Uh, that's an awesome and story. Yeah. It, yeah it, you know, I just, but it, you know, we never hung out after that. So like you, I can, I can understand what, what you're feeling. It's just amazing the the type of power that the those athletes that you have and and you, she doesn't know that that she influenced you that way but I bet she'd love to you know you never know the people that you impact and yeah that's, yeah that's a, that's an awesome story Very yeah cool. well on another podcast I'll tell the the story of how I actually met her again in a professional setting and she did me a solid uh big time in that at the US Open. So I we might have a thing. We might have what could have been if maybe I just gave her my number like you did with Carrie Underwood. Maybe it could have yeah. played out that way. Um, Jeremy, it is it is awesome to have you on the show. I, I can't thank you enough for stopping by. When I thought about doing this podcast and I knew it would be running into the Olympics, I said you, you are the go-to guy that I was going to have on this show because what you accomplished, uh, obviously athletically and what you're doing professionally, is is truly special. So once again, thank you so much for not only sharing some of those Olympic memories but telling your embarrassing moment about Carrie Underwood. I loved it. Yeah, it, it was quite embarrassing. Yeah, my my pleasure. Yammer, and I'll see you in the studio soon.
Well, really great stories from Jeremy Bloom, and I don't think we're going to let him live down the Carrie Underwood situation next time he is on set with us. Olympics, obviously, about to to kick up, so hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. We're going to keep with the Olympic theme uh, next week on the Give Me a Sense podcast. Samantha Peshik, Olympic gymnast, is going to be joining us to tell us about her some of her experiences, obviously, competing in the Olympic Games, not to mention she tells a great story about Kobe Bryant. In two weeks, we're going to get back on the football train Rich Rodriguez, who is the head coach of Arizona Wildcats football, is going to be stopping by. I I often call him the best storyteller of all the coaches in the Pac-12 conference. Maybe the best storyteller that I have ever had to uh, had the the honor of being able to interview. So Coach Rodriguez is going to be joining us in two weeks on the show. Samantha Peshik next week. Don't forget, continue to rate, subscribe, and review, and make sure you tell your friends about the Give Me a Sense podcast.